Welcome again to Thinking Through Autonomy. Today, we're with Bonnie Simi, president of JetBlue Technology Ventures out in San Carlos, California. We'll be talking about her portfolio, including investments in urban air mobility, micro weather forecasting, and hybrid aircraft technology. We're also going to discuss her incredible personal journey that starts on a loose track in Lake Placid, spans an Olympic career that includes bobsledding, and of course, time in the cockpit of one of the world's most advanced commercial airliners. All this and more in our episode today. So as they say, sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Bonnie, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you here on Thinking Through Autonomy. Welcome. Thank you, and I'm really excited to join you, especially since I'm speaking with uh, you know, a fellow aviator. And in fact, two aviators who worked at the same company who have not run across each other after all these years. So it, it, it's kind of like making an old family connection, isn't it? It is. It is. But, you know, as somebody said, why, why are you still flying? And I said, once a pilot, always a pilot. So we're, <laughs> all, we're all still pilots and we're all still part of the family. Yeah, and sometimes I alter that to say I'm a recovering pilot, too. <laughs> but that, that is for a different podcast, I think. <laughs> old pilots and what they used to do. But, Bonnie, I just want to jump into things, and I want to talk about your personal investment strategy. Now, the first investment you made that appeared in the New York Times was, frankly, for not a lot of money. And I don't know if you remember that article, but the article was called Bonnie Warner's $8 Investment Matures. And it was written by legendary sports writer Frank Litzy. And I understand this $8 that you invested in yourself was for injury insurance when you went to luge school at Lake Placid. <laughs> Tell me about this $8 and where it ranks among all these wonderful investments that you're doing. Yeah, that's, that's funny because when you were talking about my personal investing strategy, I thought this was about JetBlue Technology Ventures. And then, yes, I actually do remember that investment that I made way back in, uh, gosh, that would be in 1980. So it was in, um, I was in college and I had taken a semester off and I was in Lake Placid for the 1980 Olympics as a torchbearer. Uh, and I was a starving college kid at the time. And, and, and once, once the Olympics ended, I had like a month with nothing to do uh, before school started again and no money to do it with, basically. And then I fa saw this luge camp uh, that was in Lake Placid for people who wanted to try luge. And it only cost $8. And that was for the insurance. Uh, it was a free camp. And then the $8 was for the insurance. And, and the local town, there a lot of folks were, were taking in athletes. So I had free housing at a local hotel. and. and and I said, sure, I'll try that. Um, why not? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, if there hadn't been that luge camp and uh, I hadn't signed up for it and my little $8 investment, I, I'm not sure if I'd even be here today because it really led, it started and kicked off a career for me. Uh, I had planned as a young kid, I'd always wanted to be in the Olympics and ultimately it led to, to uh, I made the Olympic team four years later. Uh, and then into a broadcasting career, which was also something I had said that I wanted to do when I was a kid. And then the broadcasting career gave me enough money to 
to earn uh, my pilot's license, which is also something that I had said that I wanted to do when I was a kid. So I had this little list of things I wanted to do, and one thing kind of led to the other, and, and uh, eventually I got into aviation. So I have to say, uh, you know, in the, in the spirit of startups, I pivoted many times, um, but that initial investment has paved off, paid off very well. Bonnie, as I understand it, your daughter has followed you into luge. And I'm just wondering, what kind of advice do you give to young athletes like your daughter about achieving excellence? Because I have to think that what you do in sports or, or that initial thing that, that you do as you put your feet down and, and start your professional career follows you the whole way. So do you give your daughter luge advice that would happen to help out when she becomes the next CEO of JetBlue Ventures? <laughs> Um, so yes, my daughter, uh, you know, she actually discovered the sport without me. We had moved to Park City because uh, I was working for JetBlue's Salt Lake City um, call center at the time, and uh, they have an they literally in her junior high school had after school luge, and so she got involved in it through that. Although she has since retired at the ripe age of you know 17, uh, she she went on to college, which I'm quite happy with. But when she started it. You know, I, I always say, people, if you're interested in things and kids have dreams and, uh, you know, she just wanted to do it because it was fun and I supported that. But for those who have dreams, you know, it's just take one step at a time. Don't, don't uh, you know, think, it's the same thing for people who want to become pilots. It's, it's the same thing for people who want to get into other parts of careers or entrepreneurs. Just, you got to take that first step and maybe then, and, and plan maybe two steps ahead. You have the big vision. I want to be in the Olympics. I want to be a pilot. I want to be in broadcast television or whatever it may be. But what are those first steps? And, and you know, when I grew up as a, as a little kid, uh, I grew up in a small mountain town. We, we didn't have any money. My mother was a disabled, single mom, disabled school teacher. So, you know, the economics of the family were not uh, conducive to things like becoming a pilot or any of that kind of stuff, but, uh, or, or becoming Olympian. And when I came home from school one day as a teenager, I said, I want to be Olympian someday. My mother didn't say, you can't afford that, that's, uh, that's impossible, you're crazy, or any of those things that normal people would say. Um, what she said is, oh, okay, well, how are you going to do it? What's your first step? And so, you know, my daughter's first step was to take luge from, you know, down near the bottom, uh, going down three turns, and then the next thing was to master four turns, then five turns, and, and, and work her way up. And, and, and as a pilot, um, people who say, hey, I want to get my pilot's license, I say, just go take three lessons. After three lessons, three lessons are achievable for anybody. After three lessons, you then can decide if being a pilot or getting a license is something you achievable that you want to do. So it is take that first step, plan it out, and then just keep moving in that same direction. Have those long-term, and you know, you can call them goals. I actually call them um, um, dream goals. And the, the difference is, you know, a goal often people people have feel that they have to map out a full path of it. A dream goal is one where it's that North Star. It's that thing that's in the distance that you're always kind of pointing towards. Um, and you keep working your way towards it. Just keep taking, you know, one step forward. And sometimes it'll be two steps back. And when I started Luge and then I, you know, went um, my first international trip, I was tra training with the Germans and I crashed every run for 52 runs in a row. And, and I thought I was crazy and I was going to quit the sport. And, and then the coaches started helping me. So, uh, you know, two steps back, and then I took three steps forward. And, and, and in four years, I was beating the Germans. So it's you just got to keep taking steps forward and have that North Star as a dream goal. And you also had the $8 of insurance, so you were pretty protected yeah. on all of those crashes, <laughs> yes, I, I would yeah, imagine. I yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit about JetBlue Technology Ventures. You're the president, but you're also something else that's very unique and that you're the founding force of JetBlue uh, Technology Ventures. And I'm wondering, when you put this idea together and you brought it back to the bosses at JetBlue Corporate Headquarters, what kind of response did you get when you first pitched this idea? Well, this actually was um, a vision, I have to say, of our at the very top of JetBlue. And we, you know, the chairman of the board, um, he was one of the, you know, founding members of the of the board way back when, Joel Peterson. He's a entrepreneurship professor at Stanford. There were several other other venture capitalists uh, on the board and and such, and and, and visionaries who who were thinking, you know, JetBlue is a very innovative company um, that's in our DNA. It's kind of how we are wired. But, you know, we're, t it's, it, it, we're 15 years old at that time, and, and it's easy then to just focus on, you know, what we do well, which is fly airplanes safely from point A to point B and, and deliver excellent service. Um, but, you know, we're a 5% player uh, in the U.S. domestic market. You've got, you know, United American Delta Southwest, each owning roughly – 20% of the market, so that's 80%, and the rest of us have the rest. And if you're a 5% player, you know, it's it's tough to see how you might be around in 50 years. So the, the, the board is like, let's think about JetBlue in a broader sense, just like, you know, think about Disney. It started out as, you know, a cartoon and a mouse in a movie, and, you know, now it's an entire entertainment company. And, and you think about JetBlue and the amazing service we do, and if we think about JetBlue as a travel company, more broadly than just as an airline, you, how, how do you do that? How do you think about, it's a different set of skill set and it's a, it's a different way of thinking of innovation from the outside in. And so it was really the board that came back to, to JetBlue and the management team and, and leaders and said, look, we want you to think about innovation from the outside in, you know, go figure that out and, you know, set up whatever you think is the right path to do that. Uh, and at the time um, I had a, I was head of talent and, and did a lot of work with our leadership team. And I'm from Silicon Valley. I've you know, been resident here for a very long time. And, and, and I suggested that it should be a, a corporate venture capital firm. And, and that's the interesting thing at, at innovative companies like JetBlue. If you say, hey, I've got an idea, uh, they'll say, great, go do it. <laughs> so I raised my hand and they said, fabulous, go figure it out. So. You know, I headed west, um, which, you know, is kind of the, the my home stomping ground. And with a clean sheet, it was very much just go figure it out. And uh, I spent um, a lot of time interviewing a lot of other um, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, corporate venture capitalists, what works, what doesn't, Stanford professors and others, and really mapped out what ultimately has become. And, you know, it just got featured in some, you know, business school case studies as, as the right way to do corporate venture. And, and so we kind of framed it up and just followed that path. And here we are four years later, we've got 25 investments. Um, although we don't uh, publicize the amount of our investments um, or the progress, um, let's just say our, our startups are doing very well. Um, and as an investment, at least at this point, <laughs> our, our, we have very significant um, positive um, trends with our, with our startups. So, you know, it's, it's a long game. So we'll see, uh, you know, seven to 10 years if there's financial returns in terms of the, the exits of these startups. But really, this is more about making JetBlue better as an airline and also thinking about JetBlue more broadly as a travel company as we partner with some of the other subsidiaries within JetBlue. And so we're kind of that, that innovation engine that, that surfaces 
things that help keep JetBlue um, forward thinking. Yet you are the startup airline, you know, even though 15, you're 15 years in the making. And well, we're 20 years now. When we started, now. When, yeah, right. when I started JetBlue Tech Ventures, uh, you know, this vision was about five years ago. Now, now we're 20 years. So, yeah, we're in the airline industry. We're still a startup, I guess you could You're say. Well, you were kind yes. of a, a medium, uh, you know. But in the industry, where where the where the giants are almost, uh, you know, are at 90, 85, 90 years old. I think approaching 100. Uh, yeah, we're still a startup. And yet, when you look at the larger aviation industry. The model you have for venture investing is really not found in too many of them. And I'm wondering, when, when you walked into the room with the other industry players that were there, did they look and say, oh, yeah, this makes sense or, you know, for JetBlue to pursue this? Did your peers say, oh, you know, maybe snicker in the background saying, oh, look at JetBlue, look at what they're trying to do? Uh, because I think that the difference between then and now is, you are like this incredible, serious player when it comes to investing. And back then, what the audience needs to understand is you're doing something very radical in a very old industry set in its ways. Yeah, we, um, I, you know, the the announcement way back there in, in uh, early 2016. Now, now, the industry itself, it is a, a, an older industry, a legacy industry, a lot of legacy technology. But it is an industry and always has been an industry that captures people's imagination. It does make headlines all the time, usually for good reasons, but sometimes not for good reasons. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a sexy industry, if you will. Aviation just always is. Um, and, and yet it's a very low margin. Um, so it's very difficult to innovate in a very low margin um, industry. And so that's why there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation. And so when we set up and the way we set this up, it, it, it captures people's imagination right away. But nobody, no airline really uh, in the world was set up to do anything like this. So they, they're like, huh, that's interesting. I won't say didn't pay attention to it. I think it caught, I mean, JetBlue's uh, has captured the imagination of airlines and the industry worldwide just because of the way we operate and such. So, but I don't think they thought, huh, maybe we should do that. It was more like, huh, that's interesting. And there weren't a lot of naysayers, but there weren't, there weren't a lot of, it was more like, huh, that's interesting. Um, and then people went on to do their business. Um, since then, over the course of time, um, there's a couple, you know, there's a few airlines internationally that are, uh, have announced that they're setting up venture arms, uh, you know, haven't yet seen too much progress, but they may have been progress. I just, it hasn't, um, you know, met the public eye just yet. So they're modeling some of the, some of the work after us. We work with a lot of, we have, we do partners, um, partnerships. And so we advise a lot of airlines, um, and actually other companies in the travel industry brought more broadly, uh, across the world. Cause you know, when we got started, you know, people here in Silicon Valley kind of helped us figure things out. And so it's a sort of a pay it forward. So we do advise a lot. So there's more and more activity, but I do know the airline industry itself, every time we do an announcement of an investment, uh, those startups, uh, the startups get additional attention from the industry because we even had one startup come to us and said when they were trying to pitch themselves to big name airline, U.S. big name airline X, that airline said to them, um, well, uh, why don't you have investment from JetBlue Technology Ventures? And that, then that startup came to us and said, look, you're kind of the stamp of approval. 
uh, now in the industry and people are asking why you aren't investing in this. And then if you do invest in, so when we do invest in startups, they get a whole lot of extra attention. Yeah, even from our competitors, but we don't stop our portfolio companies from, from working with competitors because, you know, we want them to be successful. But the nice thing is we, we're well, you know, we, when we invest, we have a seat at the table. That's, that's kind of the whole point. And so we really know the inner workings of the startups and how we can best benefit JetBlue. And, and then if they're successful, they may deploy with other airlines as well. And uh, we, we hope they do. And we raise the bar for the entire travel industry. And I just hope it isn't a kiss of death that, if someone asks, well, why hasn't JetBlue Ventures invested in you? And you say, well, we gave them the pitch and they turned away that, you know, there is a, another place for them if they have that technology. I'd, let's just talk a little bit about some of these amazing companies that are in your portfolio. The first one that comes to mind is Climacell. And that's a weather forecasting tool for micro weather. And it seems to have plays in urban air mobility and drone package delivery and certainly the airline industry. Yes. Can you kind of share why you're attracted to this kind of technology when it seems weather forecast? Everybody forecasts the weather. I forecast the weather and say it's raining outside. What what does Climacell bring that others don't? Well, first of all, I think, and, and this is a great case study too of how we work with startups. So when we invest, we invest in early stage startups. So the startups, you know, may be three people, six people. Uh, and then, or, you know, it could be maybe up to 20 people. So they're still fairly early often. And then we work with them and help, you know, maybe we'll let them use the, the JetBlue platform um, to test things out. We advise them, we guide them. And of course, like I said, once they get that stamp of approval, other, other people pay, pay notice. So Climacell is a classic example just like that. So Climacell uh, is founded um, by some gentlemen out of MIT and Harvard. Uh, one of the founders is um, was a fighter pilot in the Israeli Defense Force, and so he very much had aviation in his mind. And and uh, you know, aviation weather worldwide um, is usually provided to the government and then repackaged from various various companies that you know enhance it or whatever. But the the raw data comes from all the same place. And um, there's and, and to your point, why, why do you need somebody to tell you when it's raining when you just stand outside and you can say, oh, it's raining? Well, that's the point. If you to look at uh, at weather, and this is particularly valuable for when we start thinking of, of the urban air mobility speed pace. At airports, you know exactly what the weather is on the runways because that's where the major weather sensors are and where the visibility is and that sort of thing in terms of ground-based weather. And you know if it's raining or not and if it's because the tower will update uh, what the weather is. But you don't know what the weather is um, a mile away at the ramp, which might be very different than what it is on the runway. And ramp operations are, are very important as you think about uh, when's the lightning? Is the lightning going to happen? When When is the rain going to, uh, and as you think of kind of like looking ahead a little bit, maybe two hours, three hours, four hours, when is the rain going to turn to snow? Uh, when do we need to roll the de-icing trucks? All of these things are operational decisions that uh, a ramp operations um, need to manage besides the normal tradition traditional airplanes taking off and land, which runs into kind of the national uh, airspace and dispatchers and such. And so 
we we uh, we t- we met these guys, and I think there were six of them at the time when when we when we first met them, and they had this technology. As it turns out, cell towers, so um, you know, phone cell cell uh, telephone towers, which are mm-hmm. everywhere, they're sure. ubiquitous around the world. Um, the the signals between cell uh, cell towers. The type, um, uh, they attenuate differently depending on the type and intensity of weather, uh, particularly of, of precipitation. So the the cell companies, um, the, the data that flows off of those towers, that you can use that in real time to determine is it raining, is it snowing, what is the intensity, uh, is it foggy, all of this, which when you think of weather radars or weather sensors around the world, they they're just not. They don't have that uh, except for these cell signals. So these guys patented that technology, uh, signed up, you know, glo- some global um, cell providers in in various regions of the world to to capitalize on that. And then <clears throat> they had this great technology. But again, technologists often have a hard time of like translating information into a product that can be used by consumers who are not technologists. And so uh, they had a very big interest. in, if you think about what what would be the market for understanding what is the weather at on First Street versus Second Street, or on this farm plot versus that farm plot, or this parking lot versus that parking lot, or this ball, uh, ball uh, baseball stadium versus this versus you know center of town? Like if you want to know the weather in Boston, all you have is the weather at Boston Airport and the general weather at Boston. You don't know what it is at you know Fenway Park, and so what. Uh, you know these these guys were able to do is a very very precise local weather and forecast out three hours so like should you do a uh, is the game going to get rained out or not is the ramp going to get shut down for lightning or not all of these things um so we then set, set them up with our operations team in boston this is even before we invested because they weren't quite there yet where we could see uh, can they turn this cool technology into something useful so we the boston operations team sat with them for, you know, they'd come in and, and, and display the stuff and the Boston Ops team said, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And then they'd go back and redo the product and come back again, like every week for about four months. Uh, and they developed an aviation product uh, with us. And at that point, we then we then invested in them, um, which then puts that stamp of approval. Uh, and since then, they have um, deployed with several several uh, airlines um, around the world, including, yes, including some of our competitors. But they're also able to do, they work with Major League Baseball, um, they're getting into the insurance market, uh, agriculture. It's like huge because to having that micro weather uh, is, is, um, is very, very valuable. Now, you know, we're in the process of helping them work through uh, becoming an official weather provider for dispatch purposes, which you would know as a pilot, it's slightly different uh, type of, of, of process, um, Which but is once the big that leagues. happens, it can be used for that. But if you think about, because the path we see the future, this kind of leads into some of the other work that you're doing is, if you're flying an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft from, you know, the top of one building in, in you know, downtown San Jose to the top of another building uh, in, the, in San Francisco, what's the weather? on those in that area and so Climacell will be very very incredibly valuable for um for the ev tall uber air mobility um, industry and if we could just maybe shift a bit further into aviation and the airframes themselves you're making some plays into advanced technology aircraft 
And I'm, we know on the airline side, there is this enormous pressure to become carbon neutral, to, and that's not to mention the flight chaming movement that's starting in Europe. When you sit back and you evaluate a potential investment in some of this advanced technology, do you worry that the certification processes that we have right now might not be able to keep up with either the business model of the aircraft manufacturer or your goals as an investor? Well, see, we're a... We, when we invest, uh, we invest early on, and it, we're minority investments. So we're, we're, we're not deploying a huge amount of money, but we always require, uh, as part of the investment, that we have a either a board seat or a board observer, and there's some technicalities in the difference. But the point is we have a seat at the table. And our investments are more um, meant to... There, a lot of it can be market intelligence. Um, you know, will there be a, a huge financial exit on the end? I mean, like I said, all of, we're, we're doing quite well on that area, but that's not the main point. The main point is is seeing how the industry will change, making sure that we're on the leading edge of all of that, and also to help the bottom line at JetBlue. Like Climacell, our investment in Climacell, if we're able to reduce delays dramatically, that impacts the bottom line real time uh, far more than any investment or investment return that we would have. So I, I, I think about um, the the future on the, and some of the investments that we've made on on, um, on the aviation side. Uh, we look at the general trend, two general trends that we think are going to dramatically impact the aviation industry, um, and that's and that's uh, would be electric. The electrification, if you will, and urban air mobility in the terms of eVTOLs. And I'll, I'll get into both of those in a second. Um, but if we think of it, why were we looking in this space? What are we looking? What is What does trends matter? Well, if you were um, the auto, you were on the board of Ford or GM or Toyota or any of the big auto uh, makers, and you heard about this little company called, in, in 2009, you know, called Uber, and they were going to uh, let strangers ride in personal cars. You'd think that was crazy. And what would that have to do with you? Well, that entire um, industry now, Uber uh, and Lyft and all the others around the world, have dramatically changed the auto industry because people aren't buying cars as much because they have this access to mobility. Same thing then with Airbnb and the hospitality industry. If you were on the board of Hyatt or Hilton, you would have thought, like, who's – this little startup called Airbnb that's <laughs> yeah, who are these guys? Yeah. strangers in your house. So that, but now Airbnb is worth more than than the hotel companies. So the question is, what's going to happen to airlines? Are airlines going to be impacted by startups? That is part of our thesis of why we set up JetBlue Technology Ventures. We want to know what's happening before it happens. And so our thesis, and you know, we're the where we've kind of landed on, is that airlines as we know them today in the U.S. they're called 121 Airlines. Uh, that's part of the name by the name, as you know, of the of the Federal Aviation Regulations of scheduled air traffic. Yeah, is yep. uh, you'll still go to to San Francisco to fly to New York or San Francisco to fly to London. So major airlines will still exist. But we believe that short-haul travel, so regional travel, um, call it you know 700 miles and less, uh, will dramatically change. And so, uh, and that's where, and the reason is, is because of the rise uh, of electrification. And we can say it's because of sustainability, but really uh, it's, it, in the end, it's the economics of electrification are phenomenal. Um, now, interesting. Getting back to those same regulations, I I look at it as when when aircraft were first first developed, they were 
piston engines with propellers. Uh, and, event, and then there, a big thing came along where you had uh, turbine engines and jets and that, that jet age, if you will. Well, the regulations had to change because the regulations only were how do you certify propeller airplanes with piston engines. And all of a sudden, you had jet engines. Well, that, that changed the regulations. Well, guess what? Up until about three years ago, there was no way to certify electric aircraft. And now there is. So there is a and that and so that evolution is changing. And you know, it, it, each one is a little bit of a one-off still. But in the FAA at EASA in Europe and and you know some of the other uh, regulatory agencies around the world realize that electrification of of the aviation industry is happening, and they need to develop the regulations for it. So we have a seat at the table at the leading edge uh, at a startup that is ahead of all the others around the world in uh, um, eVTOL, so electric vertical takeoff and landing. So the batteries- Would that be Joby? That would be Joby. Ah, okay. uh, would be Joby. And they are uh, ahead of everyone and they're in the certification process now. So that gives us a seat at the table at this of, of the industry at the convergence of electrification and vertical takeoff and landing urban mob air mobility. So we know what's happening because we literally or I have the seat at the table. And so that's why we do some of these investing. And when you think about purchasing aircraft, for an airline to purchase aircraft, you know, you put, you book, have your order book is 10, you know, goes 10 years out in the future. And, and really it does inform as we think about, should we be purchasing aircraft that are for short haul? Or should we be thinking about aircraft that are for longer haul? And if you look at the, air, the, the, the JetBlue order book now, and it's evolving and we've moved away from, our, our, our current fleet, which was an Air 190, into the Airbus 220, which has longer range. And, you know, there's a piece and an element of the work that we've been doing that helped inform some of that. One of the things, Bonnie, I find really fascinating about your investment in Joby is that to an outside observer like me, it looks like you're taking sides on the great divisive debate right now of should these vehicles be powered through hybrid power plants? or should it be an all-electric vehicle? Are you, by putting your money in Joby, saying we've made up our mind and we fall on the electric side, or do you think there's still room for the hybrid vehicles out there? Well, I, I you know, what, what again, I'm, I'm saying what is the point of our investment? The point of our investment is we believe electrification is gonna transform the aviation industry. And so by having a seat at the table and making this investment, we're able to follow those trends. And yeah, we do look at, you know, we see the hybrid um, as well. But if you think about why, why do current, I mean, you can currently take off, uh, well, it used to be when there were, were vertiports before they decertified a lot of them. Uh, you could have taken off on the rooftop of a building in San Jose, California and go to San Francisco. I say that because literally our offices are between San Jose and San Francisco and, there's a lot of traffic there. So you could have, have taken off on a helicopter from San Jose and get to San Francisco and land on top of a building. Why can't you now? Well, there's a couple of very important reasons. One is it's very, very, very expensive um, because the parts and certification of a helicopter, because there's so many single points of failure. I think uh, the last, uh, when we were looking into it, 52 single points of failure, you need to make sure that all, you know, everything from the rotor blade to the, 
you know, drive shaft and all of these things is, is all of that, uh, they have to have a lot of maintenance on them. So there's a very, very high cost to it. Second of all, they, and there's the fuel burn and to keep an air, a vehicle hovering in the air, not using the forces of lift to keep it like an airplane does, uses a lot of power. So it uses a lot of fuel. Um, and then they are very, very noisy. And that is the reason primarily why urban areas will not allow helicopters into the into the area because they're so noisy well what uh, you know I, I, when i think of joby was so an electric and the, the thing is flying the vehicle's flying and i've listened to it and it's it truly is unbelievably quiet and so that noise is not going to be an issue now if you use a um, a hybrid um, that you could have some of those n same noise issues. Now, I'm not saying, and there's the weight issue too, right? Because if you if you have a hybrid, there you're going to have additional weight because you have both the the um, the generator or, or however you think of the hybrid side of it, um, or or another engine. Uh, you know, does that mean that the that the hybrid isn't going to work? No, that that's there's a possibility it will. Um, it allows us though to see the evolution of both and and i think where where we land on is we're looking and why we've chosen joby is um, because it, it, their design reduces cost is, um, enhances safety there's no single points of failure whatsoever and uh it's um it's not noisy so this is sort of cost um safety and noise bonnie one of the things that i'd like to do um noticing that our time will be coming to an end here shortly I have to ask you on the issue of urban air mobility a pilot question. So I hope you don't mind that. No, not at all. And I want to I want to end the show talking about your portfolio around passenger services because there are a couple of interesting tidbits that come out as I look across the companies you invest in. But when we talk about urban air mobility, the next words usually out of the sales pitches, it's an optionally piloted vehicle. And certainly up front as the FAA gains experience with uh, UAM, as we get ex uh, experience with the airframe life, the durability, there's going to be a pilot up front. And so I'm just wondering, if there is this huge push for urban air mobility, doesn't that exacerbate the problem that a company like JetBlue or United or Delta would have, just putting pilots in the cockpit? Because now we've got a whole different group of pilots that we need to have you know, going from my house to your office, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, so uh, one of the reasons, again, um, you know, uh, we very much focus on safety. JetBlue, if you're going to put JetBlue's name on something, we have to be thinking about that. And so even though JetBlue Technology Ventures is a separate entity, it still has a JetBlue name and we're still funded by JetBlue. And so safety, which is our number one value, is incredibly important. Um, yes, there are eVTOLs out there um, that are, uh, building on a business model of pilot optional. Um, we believe that while technology, te technologically that is most certainly quite possible and achievable, um, you know, Ehang is one of them uh, out of China, just like it's, you know, you, the Tesla can do an, an automated vehicle right now on the freeway. And we see the, you know, vehicle autonomy on the ground getting there. But and, and quite frankly, most of the accidents that happen on the ground and most of the accidents that happen in the air have human error, which when you use pilot optional, that reduces that human error. Um, but, you know, there's a whole public adoption piece that is um, 
that will take so much longer and regulation. I mean, the FAA is certainly not going to certify eVTOL, a pilotless eVTOL in the United States anytime soon. And, you know, why wait for that adoption, you know, curve to happen 10 years from now or more? The stuff would fail by then. And so it's, it's better to enter a market as piloted. Um, and then there's this, you know, the same question that, again, the ground-based vehicles have the same question that the human element, what does a human bring to the table? There are things that that a human, the human value system, you know, there, think of a car, you, you know, the something happens and a, and a kid runs out on the street and on the other side is an, is, is an old lady and you're going to have to hit one of them. Which one does it, does it hit? Or if the engine, if the motors fail or an engine fails on an airplane, do you land on the freeway or do you land in the, in the school, uh, um, playground uh, or field, but there's a couple of kids. You know, there's those moral decisions of what to do, and that's a human-based decision. We don't, we do not see that happening. Uh, pilot, um, pilot optional, call it autonomy. Uh, although technologically it can happen, I don't think public adoption or regulation will allow it for a very long time. So uh, that means then, of course, you need to rely on pilots, and we all know. That, um, as a pilot, and, and, and for those in the general public, there's a pilot shortage even right now. So we're having, the industry is having a hard time filling the cockpits of pilots as it stands. So now you're going to add another, a need for another 10,000 pilots uh, to, to fly eVTOLs around? How is that going to work? Well, actually, um, and this is one of the things that I've just found fascinating, the eVTOL space can, can actually help accelerate and build a pilot pipeline um, because it, with the exact regulations as they are now, uh, flying an eVTOL is, is, is actually less complex than flying, you know, an, an airline for JetBlue or United or anything else. Uh, and so the regulations do allow for, um, for them to be flying at five, at 500 hours versus the 1500 hours. So that is currently what, if you're going to take a charter aircraft, you can, you, you operate in the, in these, um, in the regulation exactly as it is now. And this is how you build experience. So it is a great place to build a pilot pipeline and the vehicles are cheaper to operate. So part of the reasons becoming a pilot is so expensive is you have to, you have to get, you know, four years of experience in, in gas powered piston engine aircraft that, that just take a lot of, um, it's a lot, very expensive. So this actually um, builds a really very nice pipeline um, for the industry. So. Uh, and the uh, because they are single piloted, the the pay for these pilots will be above where it is now for some of the regional pilots. So I think that's good for the pilot industry as well. Um, so yeah, we're we're very bullish on it, and it actually can be a solution um, for the pilot shortage as opposed to a problem for it. Bonnie, the last thing I want to talk to you about is your extensive portfolio in passenger service offerings. There are a number of companies that you've invested in, as you know, that focus on the passenger, focus on the passenger experience, focus on passenger um, data processing. And I'm just wondering, as, as an outside investor, and you scratch your head, I, I certainly understand you have JetBlue to worry about. But when you ask yourself the question, why aren't some of these capabilities being organically developed within these big airlines that have a hundred year history of moving people? Why do you think that the airline industry, particularly in passenger service, has, has you know, I guess not a extensive track record in innovating, you know, some of their day-to-day -day business processes? 
Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, the airline industry always has been and probably always will be a, a fairly low margin. Uh, I mean, um, when it's it, it's not it's an industry that does bring in a lot of money with airfares, but it goes right back out out the tailpipe in terms of fuel and and everything else, and so. There's not a lot of room on on any airline's uh, balance sheet to be to develop things internally that are not going to show an immediate return. You know, if you're going to see a, a payback in in two years, sure, then then uh, a company will develop that. And 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 there are some that are working on on and including JetBlue. We do a lot of cool stuff internally, uh, but it needs to show a pretty quick payback. Whereas if you do investing, you're only you're investing uh, funds that, uh, as a as a small amount, it's a uh, different part of in part it's a different part of the balance sheet. But also, we don't have to do the entire cost. You know, like I said, we are minority investors. Call it anywhere from one to five percent of a company, and so we're not having to cover the whole cost of developing whatever it is they're developing. You know, we're only you know they're taking our money, the the one percent to five percent, and they're taking a bunch of money from other places to help build this cool stuff. And so it's a really, really low cost way for us to to explore and, and had, quite frankly have a uh, research and development division that is not internal. And we don't waste money uh, on, on things that, that are gonna take a 10 year payback and we have to pay the 100% of the cost of it. You know, we're investing one to 5% and by the way, if it's successful and they start selling it to the rest of the industry, it will, pay back much more than that. So it's a, it's a model that allows us to remain innovative without having to burn internal funds uh, on, uh, on research and development that it's going to take a long time to pay off. Bonnie, with that in mind, as you look across not only your portfolio, but the portfolios of your competitors out there, are you convinced that there's a way yet where you can associate and measure an investment against the amount of market share it can conceivably bring to an airline. Is, is that correlation been developed yet, or are we still in the infancy of venture investing as it applies to um, commercial aviation? Well, I mean, a lot of the, of the um, we have sort of three different horizons of things that we invest in, things that are relevant to JetBlue within the next two years. And those are, you know, things like Climacell, Lumo, some of these other things that we've invested in that where the value will be come to the airline is uh, to the bottom line is either an increased um, revenue, decreased cost, improved customer service, or enhanced safety. So those four things, which any airline measures, and and so that is something that's relevant to JetBlue right now, and, and that's about 30% of what we what we invest in. 70% is a little beyond the horizon. So it's 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 beyond the existing operations, and we're very focused on, you know, JetBlue has another subsidiary, our sister subsidiary, called JetBlue Travel Products, which is, on the surface for the general public, think of it as JetBlue Vacations, right? It's the end-to-end experience from the moment you think about travel till you come back, and, you know, it's the entire package. But how, how, do, we, how do we optimize the, the experience from the connections, the handoff from the airline to the hotel to the, to the to the car, to the ground transportation, all of those things. Where does an eVTOL fit in? And so that that total available market, if you will, it expands from just just airlines to a much broader travel industry. Uh, you know, and and so when we think about the investments and the return and the, the total available market, 
you know, these brand extensions, where might Joby fit into this? Uh, it's, it's still too early to say. So we, you know, we look on each investment on a case-by-case -case basis, but as you build out a portfolio, if you go back, come back to a, an interview, me in four years, our portfolio will have 50 companies. You'll see that broad spectrum and some of the portfolio companies will kind of roll up together into a certain themes, an area we're very focused on right now. We've made several investments in the space is in or is around the data and is around how do we think about curating good offerings to our customers while also respecting privacy so managing that through um, and several of our startups will help help us think through that so uh, you know in a broad sense uh, we're we cover the full spectrum it's not something like a one-size-fits-all hey this is going to bring x amount of money to JetBlue or this total of market or this is going to change the industry this way it's in you know, it's all through several different ways well, Bonnie, on that word, I want to say this has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I am getting into your schedule, and we're going to talk again in five years. Maybe this will be over video. Okay. And uh, I, want to, I want to, again, thank you so much, and I wish you much success. Thank you. Thank you.